Hi, I'm Anna Rosa Parker. And I'm Daniel Lamb, and this is Artist Inclusive, the podcast for ambitious artists who want to find clarity, community, and creative success. Today on the Artist Inclusive podcast, we're we're doing something a little different. This is the first time we've done this. And so if you like it, please uh, send us a note, leave a comment, or review the show. We're going to do a best of episode where we're going to break down some of our favorite conversations with our favorite guests and just kind of talk about all the juicy golden nuggets that they've left for us to ponder because try as we might, we can't get them out of our head. Yeah. Can we call it best in show? So it's not the best of. Yeah. I actually have a, a, a document here called best in show. And it makes me think of that Christopher Guest movie. Yeah. Uh, waiting for Guffman. Waiting for Guffman. Best and then in the show, best in show. Yeah. Mighty wind. All the oh good ones. I've seen them so many times, but we're not here to talk about them. No, Christopher Guest, we'll, we'll invite you <laughs> onto the show later. Yeah, um, let's have them up. We could talk about life as a six-fingered man. It'll be great. First up is actor Jennifer Van Dyke. And we had a great conversation with her a few weeks back on the podcast. To me, the, the beauty of this conversation was... It's like talking to an Olympian, you know, somebody who's practiced, who's disciplined, who's sharp and who's at the top of her field and just really is really is really tuned into what it takes to be a consummate professional. Absolutely. And she's so, you know, I I was posting her episode on on Instagram and I just put the perfect actress because that she just understands all aspects of this of her job and she's just done it so well. And I think I said it in the outro also, she talked about how getting the job is almost like a separate profession, but it's part of it. And I think that is something that all of us artists, we sometimes come a little short. It's going after the job is, can be exhausting. It can be, sometimes we take it personally, but she's just so mastered that job of being in it and then finding different ways to work, be a voiceover, you know, doing uh, audiobooks, you name it, just always being there, ready to work. Yeah, I think she called it being nimble, right? Being nimble, yeah. Right, being, being able nimble. to pivot mm-hmm. this the way, that way. I hate the word pivot at this point because we've heard it so much in marketing speak throughout the pandemic. But really, you know, being being at the ready to, to yeah. jump in whatever direction the work life takes us. Yeah, and working with limitations, working with people that said to you, you know, make do with what you have or what can you do with that? Do whatever yeah. you do with your, if there's a limitation in space or budget, live audience. Yeah, my favorite limitation quote is, just write what you know. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I feel so inspired. That's, that's <laughs> if worse <works> that twice. <laughs> yeah, just bring your true self to the performance. Okay. Well, it's not... That's not bad, actually. I mean, not, it's not bad advice, but it's not directional either. No, it just doesn't <laughs> sound inspiring either. Yeah. Just give it 110%. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, to me, like the one of the, the things that really stood out to me was that she really looks at the brain as a muscle and she treats it like a muscle. So for her, nutrition and exercise are a big part of her life, a big part of staying staying ready to step into a role and learn a bunch of script lines in T minus two days or whatever it is. And yeah. just sort of like that sort of always being ready. That's something yeah. that a lot of, I think a lot of people, myself included, maybe forget about that when we're sort of in the in the rush of things. Yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, sure. I, I really wanted to hear her talk more about the, the brain being a muscle and, and how she approaches it. I, I could that, that would be a whole episode on its own. I'm so interested in brain education and all kinds of brain exercises. My parents-in-law, they're all about brain education. It's really fascinating. I mean, and there's so and I'm reading so much now about how you can rewire your brain. and Neuroplasticity. Ooh, don't get it's, me started. It's cool stuff. I, yeah. I play a lot of brain games on my phone when I'm bored. They're supposed to help with your neuroplasticity and problem solving skills and all that good stuff. Yeah, there's that. And then also, Jennifer didn't say this. I just want to make that clear. But I'm very interested in the brain, how you can kind of rewire it and reteach it to how you treat your body. There's, I think we should have a whole episode on that separately little Joe Dispenza kind of thing. 
Yeah, let's get into it. Let's go ahead and we put can that bring on the calendar. On. We'll, we'll get Dr. Joe in here. Maybe we'll get some psychonauts to come in here and talk about microdosing and all kinds of fun, crazy stuff when we become the not so crazy version of Joe Rogan. Just kidding. Never going to happen. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, that's a that's a good little summary of Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, she got it. She got it down. Yeah, but you know what? Don't take our word for it. Let's have a listen back at Jennifer right now, and you'll hear exactly what we're talking about. Piggybacking off of this idea of being adaptable, can you talk a little bit about what your perspective has been around being nimble and being able to stick with the changing things on a long-term basis? I think one of the most important things you can be as an actor well, let me let me go back in time because back to when I was trying to be a tightrope walker, my family always jokes that I was the one in the family who <laughs> liked to know what was happening where. I was that kind of kid. What's happening next? What's where? You know, this the, the big joke was we we moved where our dining room table was, and I was so furious as a little girl that to that I I insisted that the family stay that the table stay where it was. I mean, I probably for a week, but. But uh, it was it, it was that kind of certainty that I liked in my life. And then I adapted and we had dinner in another room and that was OK. But but the point being that I was a, a real uh, I liked certainty and I've chosen the most uncertain profession, one of the most uncertain professions that yeah. there is, because you never know what's next. So being nimble to me means being able to take the given circumstances, which are who knows how long the job will last. Well, first of all, if you'll get the job, once you get the job, how long the job will last, where, what will happen next, who's going to, what, what, what relationship that you've, you have with the director is going to lead to more work, what theater will last you back again, what producer that you've worked with the television circles. But I just had an experience. I mean, this is the crazy thing about our work. I just shot a short film before I did this play that I'm doing with a director who called me out of the blue, who I worked with 30 years ago. And he was putting together this really short film shot on a shoestring budget over basically three days. But it was something I hadn't seen in 30 years. And he it was just this wonderful sort of kismet. I mean, there the, we I we hadn't even stayed in touch. And, and then he reached out and then we got to spend this time together. And it was a wonderful project. It's those kinds of relationships where you just say, yes, I'm, I'm so glad that I knew you, that we worked and that now all these years have passed and yet we're back in each other's lives again. So the next delightful artist that we are going to explore today is none other than the writer of Queen Sugar and many other delightful things that we may or may not be able to talk about on the show. Natalie was very, very giving of her time and her expertise on the show. And Anna, I'm sure you could probably do a whole series on her, given the fact that <laughs> The two of you are related by family marriage. That's right. I mean, I feel like she, I mean, yes, I have, have that. I, I really, I think she's wonderful and, and uh, she's just always, such a, she's so um, good in the room. You know what I mean? She's always, she makes everybody feel good and she's just a gift to talk to. And, and on this show, I thought she did a really good job at describing and kind of walking the steps of what it takes to publish a book. Absolutely. I thought it was really informative and really enlightening on the whole process. As a writer who's gotten many things published online, I've never gone through the process of writing a novel and having that published and having an option for TV and all those things that she she walked us through. The biggest takeaway for me, I think, was her concept of learning to surf the waves of pitching and being rejected. Yeah, absolutely. She talked about, before we interviewed her, we talked about that briefly and I was, you know, doing some research and, and wanted to see what she looks like and sounds like from people that don't know her. And then I heard her on Dave Chung's podcast. She was talking about how she worked at her dad's firm, you know, for 11 years. And then it took her a while with the book. And he said, that's what I call overnight success because it's not. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. But we hear yeah. that all the time, the, the 10 year overnight success. <laughs> Yeah. You came out yeah. of nowhere, but you were working on it for 15, 20 years. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
No, but it was just really, you know, because we've all thought I should, I'm going to write a book. You know, I've been thinking about it for a few years. I've, I've started one. I've started a second one. And for some reason, it just feels like, okay, what do you do? What are the next steps? How do you do it? And her breaking it down and simplifying it to, you know, you write the manuscript, then you get the agent. And these are all things that are possible. We know that. If we really want something, we go after it. It's just sometimes we have a lack of want. That's why we don't do it. Or a fear, a fear of the process because or it's that. unknown, right? Fear of the unknown. unknown. Mm-hmm. Fear of the unknown is such a big one. Yeah. Especially and for me. I'm like, if I don't know what it's looking like, I'm scared to even get started. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. And that's why I feel like she's simplified it for us so much. I'm not saying we're all going to be optioned by Oprah, but we can all publish a book, I think. Yes, we're going to put a QR code on the episode. It's like everybody gets optioned by Oprah. You get an option. You get an option. Not going to work that way, guys. I wish it did. If it did, I would, I'd be like Santa Claus running around with a bag full of options, handed them out to people. Well, yeah. And I mean, That's my dream job. Yeah, totally. Like, I didn't know because we don't, I don't know, we don't talk about these things so much. Like, I didn't know that she had spent the night at Oprah's house and gotten a facial there. I'm like, these are my favorite things. Oprah and a facial? Gotta be kidding me. Anyway, I just, yeah, I'm I sure that, do that. Like, Oprah probably has like a special crystal <laughs> roller for the third eye, you know, and everything. It's probably very, very bespoke. Oh my God. I think we're getting a little crazy right now. But just, okay, back to Natalie. I think at this point we just got to roll the clip. Let's just roll it, people. Yeah. Natalie, love you, girl. Look up to you so much. I love that book, We Are Each Other's Harvest. That's her second book. It's a beautiful piece of work. Essays, interviews, photography, all about African-American farmers and the land. It's a very inspiring book. And then we'll see what the third one is. All right. That was a really good narration of that. I know it's a lot, but... No, but that's good because I, I never thought of it that way. Like you said, so got it when you said it's like, you know, inventory. You are a product that needs to do well. I mean, it's no different really than like if you're an actor, right? You go into those auditions and you know that they might be looking for a certain person. And I, I mean, I say this not being an actor. This is my, what I imagine being an actor mm-hmm. is like. But you've got to go in there and try to give them what you believe in your vision of that character, but also you have to map that has to sync up with what they're looking for. And, and you can't, to the best of your ability, take it personally right. when they reject you. And God knows I had plenty of rejection, plenty yes. of agents turned me down, yeah. plenty. And it was painful. And the only thing I could do was just think, okay, I just have to keep going. I just, I just need one person to say yes. Yeah. Just one. Do you remember how many you submitted to how many agents you reached oh out God. to? Well, so the first time I submitted my manuscript, I went to about five agents and that's actually not very many. I mean, people, you hear stories of people submitting to 30, 40 agents, all people who I had personal introductions to, you know, other writer friends who had agents and said, hey, let me pass your manuscript along or, hey, get in touch with my agent. But when I say some of those people, even with those personal introductions, some of those agents didn't even bother to, like, acknowledge that I had sent the manuscript. Nothing. Like, no, hey, thanks. Thanks so much. We'll get back to you. Nothing. And that was painful. That's painful because you've labored over this thing to create it. And somebody can't even do you the courtesy of saying, hey, look, we got it. It's going to take us a while to read it, but we'll get back to you. Some of the agents did do that, but they didn't even, I was like invisible. Now, now we talk about our dear Helen Hunt, Helen of Troy. Helen Hunt. Helen of Hunt. Helen of Hunt. Yeah, that was, that was so sweet. She's very, talking about authenticity as we often do in both the arts and in marketing as well. She's all authentic. She's just being herself. Nobody else when she shows up. I do follow her on Instagram. She was in Paris recently. I do follow her on Instagram and I did see some of her Paris photos and it's the same Helen we got when we hung out with her on Zoom, which is so cool. Like you're right on the money. She is 100% authentic. What you Mm -hmm. see is what you get. Wizzy wig. Yeah. And she's not trying to be too polished. She's an artist. And I I loved hearing about, I loved, I think 
what I loved most about the Helen episode is when she was talking about teachings, that just kind of really, because I never heard her talk about that. I don't think she talks about teaching acting on other people's podcasts, the, the big famous podcast or the Jay Leno. She doesn't talk about well, yeah, I mean, teaching. those those things are all about PR. It's about selling the most recent work, right? Talking about yeah. the show or the movie. It was really cool to have her, you know, peel back the curtain on her teaching practice and talk yeah. about the advice she actually gives actors to, like, get dialed in and get out of get out of their own way and get unblocked and really access those, those juicy yeah. things. Yeah, and she did say that exact line, I think. Well, I don't think you should say, I think, after you say exact, but she did say that it's your imperfections that are your bread and butter. So that being that she's speaking to that authentic, being authentic and people allowing themselves to be authentic because that's what stands out. Yeah, absolutely. And and if that's true, I have a lifetime supply of bread and butter. I'll never go hungry. <laughs> Very imperfect. You hey, know, I'm right with you. The the thing that I really loved about her, her take on, on the world of acting and, you know, the business, if you will, was that it's a, it's a good industry for warriors as we strive to be greater artists seeking exposure for the work we do. There's the worry of, will we make it? Will we make it? And then yeah. the perspective of having made it is then, will I remain relevant or am I still relevant? And so there's that that insidious, like, two-sided fear that shows up on the other side, too. So yeah, it's good she to said know if you're in business of worrying, this is, your per this, this is a good business to be in. It's, it's good to know that we're in good company and that mm -hmm. creativity brings up self-doubt for even the most accomplished people on the planet. Absolutely. Well said. Shall we roll the tape? Should we get some yep. Helen in here? Yeah, All right, everybody. Helen Hunt. And you said that your logic role, you're more of a, would you say you're more of a, a linear than nonlinear person? No, I just mean that that kind of work comes easily. And I think if I didn't have something like acting and writing where you have to use your imagination, you have to use your whole body, you have to be willing to be wild in your thinking, that I might slip into a life that's very about planning and organizing and, and directing at its best asks for both things. But that's rare. I think that's if you have some kind of authorship over the a feeling of authorship or actual authorship over the material, then you're, you have a real skin in the game of, of how it comes out. When you're teaching... Are you teaching acting? Are you teaching about the business also? Like, do you address that at all? Very little. It's really about the acting. There are other classes for how to navigate the business. And I don't really know, you know, how to do it, especially as a newer actor coming up. There are basic things I suggest that my father always suggested about creating your own work, creating groups of people who read plays together or make work together. You know, unlike being a painter, it seems like you can't act unless someone hires you. But I think you have to find a way to act if you're an actor so that you're getting to do the thing you love isn't dependent on someone on the other side of a table at an audition. But the class really works on the nuts and bolts of acting. And, and what I offer is as an actor, here's what I do when I feel like that. Here's what I do when someone tells me something doesn't isn't quite working. Here's what how I prepare Take what you like and leave the rest. Well, how do you feel about, you know, Zoom performance? It is so hard and I can't, I have a friend who teaches improv and a daughter who has taken improv and that's very challenging. I see the actors in my class working on scenes and they are doing it. They are showing up using their bodies and wardrobe that they put together and preparing and I'm so impressed. They're going to be ready when they're hired. You know what I mean? They are warmed up and ready to go. Yeah, 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 exactly. I also find that you really can get to the acting issues on Zoom. It's not as much fun. Yeah. You know, the most fun thing about acting is the part where you go get coffee after you've been acting. That's the best part. And that's what my daughter's missing this summer. She's in an acting intensive right now in her room on fucking Zoom. Pardon me. <laughs> but, um, but you really can do the work. I, I wondered if you'd even be able to get to acting issues on Zoom. And I, I really think you can. So these kids who are kids, some of them are in their 70s in my class, but these actors are working hard and it's mattering. They are learning, their acting is improving. And I'm stealing from all of it. When I went to work on blind spotting, I'd look at a scene and have that feeling you always have as an actor, which is, I don't know how to do this. And I would say, what would I say to the acting class? I would say, read it 50 times. I would say, write down whatever comes to you. I would say, what do the other characters say about you? I would say, how might you walk? I would say, you know, just all the tools I share with them, I then had to sort of re-say to myself. So kudos to you for bringing on our first star-studded 
interview with Aubrey Lynch. I was so excited when we got to have him on the show. Yeah, he's he's amazing. He had so much to offer. He said he was so excited to hang with, hang out with us and he could kind of feel his excitement. He had a lot to share. He had been sitting inside the apartment for over a year by himself mostly and he was he talked about how Broadway was coming back and Lion King was coming back and I loved how he talked about when he was in Lion King, how he wrote down every single step of the choreography of the whole show, like every single beat, step, move. And now when Broadway opened up and and Lion King came back, they used that choreography script that he hand wrote 15 years ago or more, 20 years ago. I don't even know when. Do you remember he was talking about that? Absolutely. That strikes me as as like the earmark of true commitment, really. Here's a guy who was in the work, doing the work, and yet he took the time to get even more deeply ingratiated in it and, and just really went all the way. I think yeah. Aubrey's a great example of somebody who, who goes all in and goes all the way and never stops and is just constantly striving in different ways. Like his energy is infectious and mm-hmm. perhaps never ending. Yeah, absolutely. And then he talked about when his performance career, the the aspect of the performance kind of ended, shut down and he was heartbreak broken. He was heartbroken and, and he felt like his world just shut down and he didn't know what to do until he figured out how he can pay it forward in a way of guiding others and teaching and choreographing and working with all kinds of artists and how art is healing, how you can heal through the arts. I thought that was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. And the question that came, I think, out of out of his grief around that, for me, it's an important question, which is, who am I behind the doing? Who am I without the doing? If for some reason I wasn't able to play music or write, who am I without those talents and those gifts? Like, because inevitably, like, we are not the work. Yeah, I know. That was such a huge thing. I kept thinking about that for a long time. And and we started to kind of implement that into Artist Inclusive, the, our community. Who are you without the work? Absolutely. That's that's just flipping that script. It's it's it's, it's wild to go through it in your mind. It is. Who you it are is, without it, your creativity even. Like, I, I I wouldn't be able to imagine. I hope I don't have to. I'm going to knock on wood in Iceland. We do it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and here in the South, we just knock on wood. You don't say seven nine thirteen. I will now. What's seven? What's that? What's the significance of that number set? Seven thirteen nine thirteen. That's the sequence Fibonacci sequence, something like that. No, it's I don't know Viking shit. Some Viking shit. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll carve a rune into something the next time I feel yeah, weird. No. I it's probably something I should remember, but I I don't. So I'd like to move on. All right. Well, we're going to treat you to a reprise of Aubrey here. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Sometimes, either sports team or the arts, particularly the arts, is the difference between life and death. It gives children a chance to express, to feel worthy, to feel seen, to own gifts that are not measurable. You cannot measure someone's talent. There's, you can't put it on a grid and say, here's the rubric. It does not exist. You would try to make them, it's, they don't work. It's subjective. The arts are about human to human connection. They're about knowing who you are, owning yourself. It's about looking in the mirror and loving what you see, despite what you're told about what's in perfection. And the arts empower, break down walls and can change the world if we let it. And even if we don't, I think that theater, as I said, and I'm making this up myself, but theater is the therapy of the masses. We go to theater to see ourselves. We know it's not an elephant on stage. We know that that's not the king of the lions. It's a guy wearing carbon graphite to paint to look like a lion. But if we're told that's Mufasa, we believe it. We want to believe it. We have to believe it because Mufasa's journey or Simba's journey or Nava's journey might be our journey. And I can live through that journey through someone else and be healed. Here we are 20, 20 some years later when they open they and they just announced that launching open September 21st after being closed for over a year. When they go to the first ever rehearsal, they're going to open a book 
And the bottom of my corner, it says written by Aubrey Lynch in 1996. I am so proud of that. The choreography they will do is what I wrote down 20 years ago. Wow, that's amazing. Congratulations. And that's why they made me this as choreographer and this as producer. And then I mounted 14 productions of the Lion King Run World. And that's my hard work. And I didn't, I, I did not expect that to happen. So when I came off stage for that very first, never forget it, came off stage and I was watching the show and writing, writing it down, preparing to go to London to, to teach the show in the West End. And it didn't occur to me that would be my last official performance as a, as an, as a performing artist. I then had become, without realizing it, an administrator. And I wish now that I had continued training. I don't know how I could have because I was, I was in country traveling most of the year. I was never in one place for more than a few weeks. It would have been really hard to train and to keep my dancing up. But when that journey came to an end, there was some downsizing. So you can imagine being at the top of the world for 10 years and the biggest show in the world. I met Bob Iger, I met Oprah, I met Tyson, Portier, Mike Jackson. I met all these people, the Clintons, because of the Lion King. And then one day I'm walking on with the box with that journey was over. And I had no love lost and we still very close to Lion King. I, I, I just, they just didn't need me anymore. And I had to reinvent my life. So that did not, I didn't ask for that. And that was probably the darkest time of my life where I'm talking dark, dark, like the end of the world, like you kind of shove off a bridge kind of darkness. And I had to kind of read, who am I without Lion King? And I, who am I? I was defined until then in my mind by Alvin Ailey and the Lion King. I was Arby the Lion King, Arby Bailey. I was not just Arby Lynch. And I had to look in the mirror and do what I'm asking us to do that are, that are listening in the world right now. Who are you? What do you love? What inspires you? What are you afraid of? What do you really dream? What are you willing to do to get a, go after that dream right now? Well, I didn't have an answer to any of that. I had no idea what I wanted. I had no idea where I wanted to go. I had no idea. I had no idea. I hadn't thought about it. And shame on me for thinking that Lion King was going to be my retirement. Dummy, dumb, dumb, dumb. So life lesson that can't wait too late. So I went back to dance. I went to the A-list school, taught a little jazz class. I was making all this money to making my little $75 a week and began at the beginning. But then came to find out that it wasn't the beginning. I had a world of knowledge that was very good as a teacher. I loved delivering information to young people. It was a natural par- parent. My, the parent to me came out. And when I found myself at the Harlem School of the Arts, and never forget it. Walking there the first day, of the first day of the job, I was brought, brought there to be the director of dance and musical theater. And this little beautiful girl was sitting there, a little bun in her hair, and the mother was there. And the mother said, "My daughter wants to dance." Dot dot dot. And she was looking to me for advice about how to teach. And I, I mean, I was well up. I was so moved. And this huge responsibility came. I said, "This is not about dance. It's about raising children. This is about being in partnership." parents to give that child a chance at their dreams. And that was such an inspiring moment that I was hit. I began to heal from my uh, departure from Lion King because of the children. I like that. Yep. And I went to my office and began writing out a curriculum for her. Okay. She's got ballet on Tuesday, ballet on Thursday, little jazz on Saturday. And I began to build this program. That, that young woman, she stayed with the program until she graduated high school. So I think before we before we introduce the next best of best in show artist, I probably need to go grab my banjo and put on my overalls because we're talking to David Stevens, the, the consummate musician, puppeteer, and all around like super nice, good human. Oh my lord! Yeah, he was he was such a treat. He was fun. I've I just don't I've talked to puppeteer before. Yeah, it's 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 a special thing, and you. And it it also you got to figure out if you're talking to them or them and the puppet, right? Yeah, they're all kind of there, right? Yeah, like uh, his entire like <laughs> his entire horde of puppets is like somehow they're in his mind. Yeah, with the, you. And then there was the, the bone goggles, the bone, bone. How do you say that? Boondoggles, I think. Boondoggles, yeah, boondoggles. Did he talk about glarfs? I don't know if he talked about glarfs, but that's another no. one of his, his creations. Yeah. But it did. I think I mentioned that in the show. I checked out his YouTube videos, and yeah, that's a that's that's an art form that is it's old, and we just don't appreciate it so much. I think we don't talk about it in our daily lives, but it's very much practiced. 
Yeah. And, and if, if you're listening to this and you don't know what the hell we're talking about, David has worked on Sesame Street. He makes all sorts of puppets, things that you would recognize out there in, in the culture, you know, things that look like Jim Henson's Muppets. But David went so much deeper on puppets than I think I've ever heard anybody go, especially into the history and the global history, cultural history and significance of puppeting. Well, what did stand out for me is just to kind of go back into the community with, you know, it's a bunch of all kinds of different artists, hence the name Artist Inclusive, all the way around. And he talked about what he did in the in the lockdown. And, and that was that was such a hard time for a lot of our artists. You know, a lot of the professions just, they didn't decrease, they evaporated. And he started to create a new doll, a new show, YouTube show every single day. And that's remarkable. That is, it's discipline. It is, it kept him kind of, he was thinking about his uh, mental wellness. It, it went really deep, this, this interview, more than I was expecting. Absolutely. And I think that really a lot of, a lot of important stuff came up around the value of having some accountability and community. When David started this thing out, he, he created it for himself. And he's he's brought a lot of that energy into the community and he shows up consistently and supports other people and talks about what he's doing. And it's just really inspiring to see that on a weekly basis. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to meet him in person now. Yeah. It's just yeah. a joy. He's definitely a fun person to have a drink or two with or, <laughs> you know, to talk shop. He's He's a good guy and he's fun at parties. He also throws like the best like Muppet themed parties at his house. His house is like a museum. And I remember one year we went over for a Christmas party and we watched some like Muppet Christmas movie. I think it was Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. He was giving tours and talking about all of the stuff. He's a collector as well and a musician. So he's got all these instruments and puppets and Jim Henson memorabilia. Anyway, it's it's an experience. So you'd have to do a pilgrimage to Atlanta to see David's treasure trove of puppetry arts. Yeah, I can only imagine. And I... And I can't wait for that day. <laughs> All right. With, without further ado, here is David Stevens. Well, and then there are plenty of things that happen, like what we all just experienced last year, where you have that focus and you're on that path. And then suddenly something beyond your control completely just affects every part of what you do. There, there were a lot of folks who were lucky enough to be able to work remotely or keep employed or whatever. But it was there were a lot of us creative types that were gritting our teeth and going, what are we going to do? What did you do? Well, I I got there there were a few things that saved me, actually. The Center for Puppetry Arts decided to hire part of what I am as a touring puppeteer. So I basically have show will travel. I go to a school, a library, a theater venue, and all my shows are the same setup. So I use the same puppet stage, basic puppet stage, and have about six or seven different shows that I could do from that one setup that are all different characters. They're folk and fairy tale based. So I could do a number, any of the, any of the staple of shows that I have, I could do that single stage. So because of that, they, they, the center hired me to do live streams of my shows. So they hosted a 16 week stint of my puppet shows. So we'd have a different show every two weeks. They would rotate them out. And so that really saved my butt being able to do those. And then when they were, gradually opening things up to the general public. I was the puppeteer that they had to be there in person because it was easier for them to sort of have me come in as a single performer, solo performer. So there were a number of things like that that were, and just the generosity of people who were wanting to donate, wanting to help in whatever ways they could. That Etsy sales, because I also make puppets and sell them in my Etsy store. So (laughs) plug. (laughs) I also find, and I think this is true for a lot of creative people, that if you have a limitation, and what you, the limitation is, working within the parameters of that limitation can explode your creativity. Absolutely. So that's what it was for me. I knew what these things were, and I knew kind of how how they were all made. And I had this design family, if you will. And so all of these like prerequisites for the design of what these things were. And then I could just work within them. And the pun mates help. And so it just became this whole little weird kooky thing that lasted for, I don't know, for a good couple of months. I was just, and I wanted to be in the studio. That was the other thing too. Like when you get in that zone of like wanting to be there and you look at the clock and it's like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I'd been here that long. Best in show coming up next is Anna's old friend from Seattle, Mark Siano. (laughs) 
Oh yeah, Marciano. Yeah, God, he's a he's a he's a joy. He's a he's a driven guy. He decided to make it work. He was not going to take no for an answer. He started, but he, but he will take this interview lying down. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> that was incredible. I didn't just like. Oh my god, I I didn't even think of it until afterwards, and we were talking about it. I mean, I realized that he was laying down, but I was just so focused on the conversation somehow. But just thinking about it, that he was laying down and how you said it was just funny. Yeah. 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 I've never seen anybody like do a podcast from bed and just totally crush it like he did. Like it's he it's did. only funny because he did a really good job. And I, yeah, you, you, I know. You know, to listen to him, you wouldn't think he was laying in bed. Yeah. I think he just, if he's going to take something on, he's going to crush it. Yeah. He, he's not going to have ass do anything in life. He if he takes some takes something on he's gonna he's gonna do it and he's been producing his own shows and writing and casting and producing and he's made a name for himself in Seattle. I've been to a show of his in Seattle. It was fully fully attended, and he brought a show here, a smaller one, but it was still so fully attended. He's he's fun. He's just like a he's a force. And and speaking of taking shows on the road, I. I believe he he made a note in the group the other day that he is going to Berlin next year. That's right. Yeah. He's yeah. got a show in Berlin, Germany. Very yeah. good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And the group were, you know, asking, what are you working on or something? You know, it's one of, and, and yeah. he said, I just want to get my Berlin gig back. And then we were rooting for him. And then a few days later, he said, I got my Berlin gig back. So... And we were like, what does that mean? You know, so he's, yeah, he's going to do a show in Berlin in 2020. That's so no, cool. No, 2022. Numbers. Yeah. So cool, Jesus. though. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get Mark on here to just talk about how he has played this long game and done the deal and found success. I just admire that. I think you're actually the, the poster child for the idea of art is inclusive in that way that you are like a self-produced, you uh, create your own jobs, you create your own shows, you have built an authority and we would love to hear how you started all this and how it's done. How can we do what you do? Uh, uh, so I don't know if, if my career is all that great. I feel like it it became lucrative maybe in the last four to five years, you know, so I'm in my forties now. So I'm 45, I think wasn't really, didn't really start making money until maybe five, 10 years ago, enough money that you can quit your day job kind of situation. I started producing shows in college, just putting on late night comedy type of sketch comedy type of shows and continued that work as I left college. And then the shows just became more ambitious. They became bigger and different scope. You know, we moved into musicals and cabaret and, you know, larger scale comedy shows. And I've just been keeping with it, you know, probably producing anywhere from three to four shows a year on average. And the audience just kind of slowly grows and grows and grows. And eventually, if you stick with it long enough, you can probably keep that audience coming back enough so that you can make small living at it. Yeah. What's the difference between, or it doesn't have to be a difference, but we're just thinking about, you know, smaller market like Seattle versus, you know, New York or LA. Like what are the, you know, kind of the pros and cons of, for you for like staying in Seattle and, and not living in a bigger city? Well, you know, I definitely thought about moving to New York, especially when I was on tour with the Modern Love Show. I, I was I thought about it long and hard and a few people tried to recruit me. And I did live in Los Angeles for two and a half years. And I was trying to sell our wares, our, our sketch comedy group, The Habit, was trying to get on HBO and Comedy Central going about that route. And that did not prove lucrative. It could have, I suppose, it had I chosen to stay there longer. I, I know there's a lot of success stories in L.A. like, wow, just got picked up off the street and just showed up in town. But usually, you know, nine times out of ten, it's the people who have been working and hustling there for a long, long time. So if you're if you're in L.A., you probably got to spend seven, eight, nine, ten years working those connections, meeting those people, knowing which avenues to go down and which ones to avoid. 
before you really have a, a good shot of success. I was there for two and a half years, and I found after being there, I didn't really like the city. I, I don't like the heat. I didn't like the commute. I, you know, L.A.'s a lot of fun, but I, I love Seattle. Seattle's my hometown. And I honestly, I regret living in L.A. for that long because I feel like we lost some of the momentum that we had in Seattle, whereas all of our shows were selling out and they, we were we were real popular with the media and, you know, all of our shows were doing great. We were even getting a little bit of television, local television time. And we're like, let's go to LA. We got to, we got to make it in LA. And <laughs> it didn't quite work out. And it took me a few years to kind of build that audience back up for sure. And that was lost time. And I think, I think you got to do the honors on this one. This is all you. Oh, uh, Shanga Parker, Professor Parker. Professor Parker. Yeah. AKA my, my husband. I haven't even listened to the episode. <laughs> no, he was, I thought he just shows up. He's just like that. He inspires me all day, every day. I do, I, what stands out just because maybe this reflects on what happened last night with the Emmys, how all the only white winners and still in this era, what stands out for me, because he and I were watching that last night and we got very frustrated. And so I'm going to go back to his episode and what I do remember was how he was talking about, he shared how he was casted and how he dealt with casting. And I mean, he he could talk about that. That could be a whole series of episodes, how he's dealt with that and often had to play people from countries he's not from and do accents that are just not acceptable anymore. And he talked about how he was cast, I think, on uh, Mr. Robot, a character named Jeff, 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 Jeff Gunther. Yeah. And he's like, I never get to play Jeffs or Davids, you know. So I remember when he did, he did book that gig and he was very excited to, because he is, and he talked about being a black man in America and how everybody looks different and, and, and people don't always associate him as that. And, and people used to ask him, what are you? Like, what are you? And that was, it's, there's a lot in there. I think, yeah. you know, it's hard for me to speak to sometimes, but I'm, I'm here always on the next to him and observing how he has to go through life as a, as a black, not just a man, but actor also in America and a professor. And I, I think he shared a, a, a good, healthy amount of, kind of gave us a little insight into that. Yeah, absolutely. I was so inspired by our conversation with Shanga. Not just by that, which which is a, a huge part of our conversation, and and it's absolutely what we're going to focus on in the in the replay here in a second. But he has a sort of magnetic artistry about him, and there's just something about the way he shows up and embodies space and time that is kind of magical. And so I think that shows up in the conversation, and I think that we should let Shingu speak for himself. Oh, the magnetic man! Here he comes. Side note, I totally meant that. He he is yeah. like kind of like magnetically magical. Like there's something Aww. about his energy that's just very present and like yeah. inviting. Like like when you're with him, you're with him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, Which is really cool. That. Yeah. That's nice to hear. One of the first conversations I had with my agent at the time and subsequent with every agent and every manager that I have talked to or signed with, it's just phrased differently. Back then, this was in the 90s, the question, what are you? What are you? That was very, people felt very comfortable asking that question. Then it morphed into, where are you from? And I would give an answer. I'm from born in Lansing, Michigan. No, no, no. Where are you from? Well, yeah. Where are your parents from? Still the United States. Down to being called racially ambiguous. And then I think the most recent was, where would you like to be? Where would you like to be from? So it's all around the castability of somebody who is racially ambiguous or who elicits the question, what are you? So back in the 90s, I was kind of open to everything. I'm pretty, I have a pretty good ear. I can do dialects. So I played a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent. And they learned a bit about North versus South. And so, yes, and I was very glad to have these roles, right? The money, TV money is good and it's residuals and these are shows that people watch. I still get checks from some of that stuff I did. I know, I steal them. <laughs> uh, these are roles that, uh, these are roles that I, I feel very differently now about ticking. There's no need for me to have to put on an accent to be on television. 
I did a law and order SVU, a doctor, again, a doctor. And I asked, and it had a sort of Indian name. And I asked if they needed an accent and they said, no. So I took the audition and I booked. Finally got a law and order. I'm now a New York actor. And literally we're on the set and, you know, quiet on the set, set up sound, speed. The director walks over to me and says, hey, could you do this with an accent? Action. Of course I could. And I did. And I hit my mark and I did the thing and said the thing. Cut. Great. Thank you so much. I don't feel very comfortable doing that anymore. That's not my thing. I'm going to put a stake in the ground. I did a, a episode of Mr. Robot and the character's name was Jeff Gunther. I had never played a Jeff Gunther before. When you hear Jeff Gunther, do you think of my face? I loved that. All right. So let's talk about Andy Roth. This was a really cool, funny conversation that I really didn't see coming. Even from our pre-roll talk about about scotches and about strange tequilas from Iceland and all these weird things <laughs> that kind of came up as part of the conversation. Or maybe it was something else. Was it a, a regional like liquor from Iceland that he was trying to hunt it down? Was something, it was not tequila because you cannot buy tequila in Iceland. I mean, you can get some half-ass for a high price, but they have good gin there. But he was talking about something else. I think, well, he's a whiskey man. Wasn't he talking about whiskey? He was talking about scotches and whiskeys. Scot yeah. But I, I feel like I there was some the some specific crazy thing that he was looking for. Yeah. I don't even know what it was now, but, and we'll never know because we didn't capture it. But really, what a giving guy. Just really giving with his insight and his time. And I really learned a lot about the voiceover industry just yeah, talking to him. Right? Yeah. He laid it out so perfectly. And he's fun. He's very energetic. And he just, he goes on in a, in a good way. And I took his class too years ago, years ago. He was really fun. And he's I think very, he'd be a great teacher. Yeah, he is. He's so he's so positive too. He's just like light. He's very bright and light and, and a light bulb too. True force. Yeah. I I enjoyed and that because we were just talking about Shanka and the casting and how he dealt with that and, 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 and the times we live in, how Andy brought that into the home in a, in a way of a localization, how casting should reflect each community, each country should reflect that world of the story it's telling. And I hope that is going to just, we're going to get to see and, and feel more of that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great when you, when you check out a show and you, you see that, like, say it's a cartoon, like an animated movie or something that's about a region of the world. And you can see that they actually cast people from that area versus having a bunch of Americans like do basically the vocal equivalent of blackface. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, exactly. That has been taken away, I think. I mean, it's not practiced anymore as much as, as it was. Do you remember when you like you would watch a movie and some American was doing a really bad French accent and that was acceptable <laughs> yes. when I was an actor and I didn't get cast because it sounded slightly so? Yeah. It's like, we're people of the world. So only Americans sounding American live in America? Anyway. It's funny. I, I remember that makes me think of like Looney Tunes from when I was a kid and like characters like Pepe Le Pew, who I guess got canceled <laughs> not too yeah. long ago, which is <laughs> which is probably a good thing. I don't know. I'll probably make some some enemies here saying that we should cancel the, the French skunk on a, on a kid's cartoon. But like those <laughs> those those accents are so like hackneyed, right? Yeah, they're just. <laughs> They're bad. It's it's just it's unnecessary, and we don't have to do that anymore. We shouldn't yeah. do that anymore. It's even funny too when they go for regional dialects, like American regionals, like uh, like Foghorn Leghorn is the southerner, and he's just so over the top. Yeah, I just I want to you know if we are listening to somebody from Boston, I just want to listen. I want to hear Julian Moore. Where is she, by the way? I don't know. Maybe yeah. we should have her on the show. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, because right. not everybody from Boston and sounds like a uh, like a Matt Damon, you know, or a Marky Mark. Right. Yeah, exactly. Although I, I could listen to them do a Boston accent all day. It'd be fine. Yeah. The Departed. And then in the pandemic, there's the Black Lives Matter movement. If things have changed, you know, the world wants to be more inclusive. And are you seeing that in, in casting already or? More inclusive in, in what sense? It, 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 racially. 
Oh, yeah. Well, it is inclusion and diversity. It is a big thing. And yes, we have to take into all of that into account. It is. I will say voiceover. One of the things I love about voiceover is in a lot of places, it tends to be the first because I mean, I don't want to say it's only a voice, but it is only a voice. So the term when I was doing this back at the agency was colorblind, which means we don't care to send us anybody who's right for the job. I mean, obviously, if we're looking for a deep voice, don't send us a high squeaky person, but we don't care who they are. We don't care the other stuff as long as they genetically match, you know, the components. So we have been open to that for a long time. Not always, not 100%, but it really has stepped up. People are putting a lot more effort and a lot more concentration into making things open up more, widening the opportunities. In localization, in dubbing, in animation, it can be a tricky thing because there are certain things where we definitely want to take everything into account. There are other times when we don't need to as much, if that makes sense. Localization is about making it local. So if there's a cultural aspect, that definitely gets respected. But if we get a show in from Japan, do we have to hire an all Japanese cast for it? Not necessarily. If it's something very, very specific about a culture, then yes, that will be taken into account. But if the actors that we see in the show were the actors there, then we really just have to be concerned with getting the best people for it because it's localization. And here in the United States, local is everybody. So you read everybody, but you don't necessarily have to be as specific as that person looks like this or is of this descent in the live action show, but that was really just an actor they hired. There's no cultural significance for it. Well, this has been fun just to hang out here and reminisce a little bit about the amazing artists we've had on the show and we're just getting started. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are curious about our community, we are just hanging out on Facebook and knock on our door. That's right. Come check us out. We're hanging out on Facebook. As Anna said, our door is open to all. Just just come give us all a shout. Artists. Yeah. The Artist Inclusive Podcast is brought to you by the Artist Inclusive Facebook group and artistinclusive.com. Learn more about Artist Inclusive at our website or join our free Facebook group. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts and share this message with somebody that you think would enjoy this podcast. This is how you're able to reach more engaged and impactful artists just like you.